As you can see from the beginning of our service, clearly our church uh, believes that women are gifted. We have them praying, we have them singing, we have them leading in worship, and being the director of our children's ministry program. And so we have them involved in a number of different levels. Uh, today, if you've read the text, you're probably asking the question, what in the world is he going to do with this, you know? And someone told me before we came in today, if I see your wife wearing a head covering, I know that I am in trouble. But uh, what I want to do is not immediately jump into the uh, textually specific, culturally isolated issue of chapter 11. But instead, what I want to do is step out of that for a moment and, in fact, for a long moment, and give you the broader, higher level, uh, strategic, <laughs> bird's eye view, a uh, bigger picture of this whole thing. So I want to jump out of that little bit of dicey situation, give you the big picture, and then at the end we'll get back into chapter 11 and say, okay, now then that we have the overarching grid, this is how you apply it to this specific situation. So... Normally, I would read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, but I'm going to hold off and really perhaps not even jump into that for another 30 minutes or so. So we're going to move around it and then jump into it. Does that make sense? Okay, this is how we're going. So basically, I thought, one of the, you know, I asked a question on Facebook this week, hey, you know, how do you apply this? And wow, it was interesting to listen to the responses I got anything from, you know, like, let's be Amish to who cares, do whatever you want, you know. And I'm like, okay, hold on, (laughs) bring it back in a little. Um, And so instead of me coming this morning and saying, here's my list of 10 rules, do's and don'ts for today's culture, and this is what I think is right, and then you come in with your own list, what instead I want to do is start with, I think, what would be a more uh, universally applicable uh, principle and then we can get into the specifics and the principle is this okay it's really deep it's really profound are you ready i want you to be like jesus (laughs) okay is that controversial it actually should be if you genuinely were i mean for us it sounds simple and light and loving But in fact, if you're genuinely going to be like Jesus, there are a number of ways in which you are going to be countercultural and quite controversial. So initially you're like, oh, that's simple fluff, but actually it's quite profound. So what I'm going to do today is let you think it's simple fluff, but then I'll show you how it's profound. And that way we will make the difficult applications. But here are the two ways which... I think you should be like Jesus. Number one, function in relationship. The first way in which you're going to be like Jesus is to function in relationship. And number two is to bring glory to God. Okay? All of us are in relationship. Now look, we're going to be looking today specifically, it talks about men and women, and that implies husbands and wives. And consequently, in this context, that's the way things were carried out. You may be sitting here saying, I'm single, I'm widow, I'm divorced. How does this apply to me? I assure you that it will, and I will show you how, because everybody is in a relationship one way or another. Okay? 
So function in relationship, second of all, bring glory to God. So what we'll do is we'll look at Jesus' three primary relationships and say, and then we'll look at our three primary relationships. Okay? And Jesus' three primary relationships are these. Number one, it is Scripture. Jesus has a relationship to Scripture, and he spells it out for us. It'll be easy to illustrate. He basically fulfills and obeys it. That's his relationship to Scripture. He also has a relationship to God the Father, to whom he submits. And finally, you would see clearly he has a relationship to the church, his bride, whom he serves. So these are the three relationships that Jesus has, and we actually flip that on our heads, we will see that in fact, we have very similar relationships. We have a relationship to Scripture. We have a relationship to the Spirit, not necessarily to God the Father in the same way that Jesus does as co-equal, but instead we have the Spirit dwelling in us, becoming one with us. And we also have our spouse. Now, you again may say, I'm single, I'm widowed, divorced, I don't have a spouse. Well, that's fine. You have two or three, and they're pretty significant anyway. So let us then continue under that grid today, and basically I will ask you and tell you to be like Jesus, to function in relationship, and as a result, bring glory to God. So let's go through Jesus' relationships. First of all, then, his relationship to Scripture. Uh, We know that Jesus is the highest of highs, the greatest of greats, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But at the same time, it is interesting that he himself makes it very clear that he never, ever goes outside of Scripture. He will never depart from it. He will never step away from it. He will never contradict it. He is always completely consistent with it. And indeed, a large part of his mission was to fulfill it. He is the Word made flesh. He is the pre-incarnate Logos. He is the revelation that was written, put into a person. Here is Jesus, the fulfillment of Scripture. And so when he begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 5, he basically says as much. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Yes, I'm a big deal and I'm here. But look, I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. At the same time, the devil is, about, is tempting him, and the devil takes him into the wilderness, and you know what happens. The devil is going to appeal to everything he can, whether it's the lust of the flesh or the pride or of, of man or whatever. And every time he does, in Matthew chapter 4, what you see is Jesus quoting Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone when the devil tries to tempt him uh, with food. He says to the devil, again, you shall not put to the Lord your God to the test when, he, when the devil tries to get him to perform a superhero stunt. And finally, he tempts him with the pride and says, I'll give you everything. And he says, look, you, should, you, don't, you need to worship me. I shouldn't be worrying about all this other stuff. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All three times, Jesus responds to Satan with Scripture. He doesn't even say, I'm the greatest, get away from me. He just appeals to Scripture. Obviously, he held a very high view of God's Word. Finally, even in the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, when Judas comes to him and is about to kiss him on the cheek, Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. Um, All this has taken place 
so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In other words, from the very start of his ministry all the way through to the very end, you know, from the initial phases to the most difficult and dark days, Jesus is completely relying upon trusting in and submitting himself to scripture. He obeys the word of God. He fulfills it in a unique way to him, but he also submits to it as an authority. Jesus obeys scripture. And then when we come to our relationship, you can see why that's going to be so important for us as well. But let's let's look at the next one. Jesus's relationship with his father. Now, this one is uh, particularly important for me at the start to emphasize that Christ and the father are co-equal. When we speak of the Trinity, we say that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. But all are fully God. In other words, Jesus at all times possessed all attributes of the deity. Now, in some sense, in his incarnation, he willingly submits those to the will of the Father and says, I will not exercise the divine attribute of omniscience at this time because I am fulfilling this specific role and so I submit myself to you. And what you see then is a co-equal God um, becoming human, intentionally giving up his rights for the sake of and glory of the Father. In other words, Jesus submits to the Father. Even though he fully states, I and the Father are one, Even though he is completely God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Even though in every way he shares every divine attribute, he is not any, in any sense, any less worship of, any less worthy of worship than the Father, yet he still submits to the Father. Now that is so key for us, because we in our culture, we automatically take our cultural lens and we go, And impose it on the text. And we say submission means subservience. It means less than value. um, Not as good as. And that's obviously absolutely not true. Because Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Fully worthy of worship in every way. And yet he willfully and intentionally says. I even though I and the father are one. I submit myself to the Father. And that's an important point when we come to our human relationships and we see how we interact as husband and wife. Equal value, different roles. Now, that's Jesus' relationship to the Father. Finally, let me give you very briefly Jesus' relationship to the church. Ephesians 5 says it like this. When speaking of Christ in the church, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself for her. In other words, Jesus' relationship to the church is one of self-sacrifice and service. So his three primary relationships then are, number one, to Scripture, number two, to the Father, and number three, to church. To Scripture he obeys, to the Father he submits, to the church he serves. Okay, so obedience Submission and service. This is how Jesus functions in relationship. Now then, let's bring that back around 
to us. We have three relationships probably as well. More than that, no doubt, but three big primary ones. And they are Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and our spouse. Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and our spouse. Now, my family, uh, I grew up playing this card game by the name of Rook. And it's a fun game. It's a strategic game. And it's a way for Christians to bid without gambling, which is also kind of cool. So what you do is in the uh, beginning phases before the game is initiated, you have to determine what is trump. And trump is that suit or color of cards which always wins or always beats the other card. So if you... if if red is trump and you've got red, you know you've got a winner as long as it's the highest number. Boom, I can play red. It beats any other color. Green, yellow, black, whatever. You win if you've got red. So what you do then is you become very competitive and you bid and you take a risk. And eventually trump is determined. Now, as you play the game then, obviously that one color wins. Well, so too if you play spades. In spades... The spade, the suit of spades, always wins, is always trump. And what I'd like to tell you this morning is when it comes to your life, Scripture is always trump. Always. Look, we as an evangelical free church, one of our core values is, is the Bible, that we, we hold to the truth and doctrine of Scripture, we say specifically in our doctrinal statement, number two, the Bible, look, this is what we believe. We believe that God has spoken in scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As a verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation. And listen to this. Here's the trump card. The ultimate authority... The final trump, the final say in every realm, every realm of human knowledge, whether it's your thinking, your science, your worldview, your opinions, your morality, whatever, the Bible trumps it. And any endeavor, any actual practice that you engage in, the Bible is trump. The Bible is trump in every way. Therefore, it's to believe in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. This is a big deal for us as evangelicals. This is a big deal for me as your preaching and teaching pastor. This is the driving passion and force in my life. Scripture is always Trump. Now, if you look at our society, obviously that is not the case. And even in a large number of mainline Protestant denominations. What happened is we have these cultural forces at work trying to intentionally undermine historical orthodoxy and the things that the Bible says, no doubt under a strategic initiative by the opposition. And consequently, what happens is people begin to look around and they say, wow, this scripture doesn't match my experience. What's going on here? And basically, one of two things can happen. Either you can adjust your, your behavior and your experience to fit the Scripture, or you can adjust the Scripture to fit your experience. 
And the question is, is you've got to say, what is Trump? My own personal opinion, my own experience, my own thoughts, feelings, relatives, you know, subjective reality. Or is the concrete, objective rule of faith the word of God? If so, then I judge everything else by it. And if not, then I judge it by everything else. Which is it? For me, and hopefully for us, Scripture is Trump. So that if anything comes in conflict with that, we assume we are in error. We have made the mistake. Our data or information is incomplete. And eventually we'll arrive at a fuller understanding. But at this point, we have to go with Scripture over our own experience. That's what we affirm and that's what we believe. That's what Jesus did. For Jesus, Scripture was Trump. He came to fulfill it. Who would have held him accountable if he did not? And yet he did. He willingly submitted himself to it. So, Scripture is Trump. Third and finally, our relationship to our spouse. Now, this is... Or, well, sorry, I skipped the Spirit. Number two is the Spirit, and it's very quick. The Spirit, thank you. The Spirit is we submit. Just like Jesus said, not my will but thine, we say to the Holy Spirit, not my will but thine. Still small voice rules at all times. You begin to listen to it more and more, the older and more mature or more mature Christian you become. Okay? So listen to that voice. Don't just walk out the room and ignore it. Stop, submit, obey. The Spirit. So Scripture, Spirit. All these are S's, by the way. Scripture, Spirit, Spouse. Scripture, Spirit, Spouse. All right? So obey and submit. And now the tricky one, our spouse. Um, This is tricky because, you know, the Word of God is perfect. And the Spirit is perfect. But our spouse? (laughs) Not so much. Almost. It depends on... (laughs) Who's presenting the information, right? (laughs) It's difficult because these other two things we can say, yeah, they're always right and I could be wrong and I just may not be ready to obey. But at this point, it gets really messy when you're in a relationship that just isn't perfect. This other person isn't perfect. And we realize that very quickly. Um, And yet, here's the deal. The apostle, now on the macro Big view, this is what he wants you to understand regarding your relationship with your spouse. Here's our first dip into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 3, it says this. I want you to understand, here's the principle that he's going after in this chapter. That the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, you just heard the word head three times, and there's a reason for that. As you look at this passage, particularly on this next slide, I think what you'll see is that word emphasized over and over again. Go ahead and throw that slide up there. There it is. You should see the little head all the way through there. What the apostle is doing is is using the biblical principle of headship to address a specific situation in Corinth. And he's using the head of the human body as a play on words to communicate a spiritual truth. Okay, so we can drop that slide now. And what's happening is this, is basically Jesus, or the Apostle Paul, Jesus is saying through the Apostle Paul, we can disappear the slide, maybe, if our switcher's working. All right, there we go. So Jesus is saying through the Apostle Paul, 
look, you have a physical head, right? And I'm no expert in martial arts, but I understand at least this much. Where the head goes, the body goes, right? Like, that's one of the reasons you'll see wrestlers cut their hair short or whatever. Because somebody can move your head, they can move you. Your, your body follows your head. Head locks, head throws, head whatevers. Your body follows the head. So too, Paul is basically saying in a human relationship as well. Look, there is a spiritual head who is Christ. There is a human head who is the husband. And then there is the wife as well. And there should be this functional relationship. Now, obviously, there are parts of the body that, although not the head, are just as valuable as the head that you cannot live without, right? The heart, the lungs, the whatever. I mean, you've got to have these things. They're not as, you know, up front and as obvious, but they're absolutely essential. So, in other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that men and women function in relationship. Would you give me at least that much credit, okay? Men and women function in relationship. We function in a certain way. And I would say, and I believe the Bible also leads us to believe, that they function like the Trinity. Laying out the relationship of Jesus and his Father earlier is intentional because what you have are co-equal deities who function in perfect harmony, unity, and love. And yet there is clearly a leader in the relationship. There is a follower. And yet neither are any less worthy of worship. They are both fully God. And yet there is a function within this relationship. This is what I would say of men and women as well, that they are co-equal. They're both image bearers. Genesis tells us they're both made in the image of God and male and female. He created them in the image of God. Twice it's repeated in order to emphasize it. They're both fully equal. Yet at the same time, they function in different ways. Now, what I'm essentially advocating here is what's called a complementarian view. There is, within evangelicalism, another view called egalitarianism. Um, And you can look it up, and if you read the life group questions, you'll see references to articles on both, okay? So you can be a Christian and believe either one. However, what I am presenting today, and what I think the Scripture puts forth, is the complementarian view. What am I saying? Am I saying one's more valuable than the other? Absolutely not. I'm just saying we're different. And I don't really think that's that controversial to say, hey, you know what? We're different. We function differently. So if, in fact, I can, I'm designed to do one thing and you're designed to do another, instead of beating our heads against the wall and just chasing our tails, why don't I do what I'm designed to do? You do what you're designed to do. And, in fact, we will benefit each other and both be better off. We will complement each other. And it will work well. And it will be a harmonious loving, compassionate, and gentle relationship. That's complementarianism. I don't think it's sexism or authoritarianism or patriarchal whatever. It's called, how did God make us? Let's try to do it that way. So here we are as, as, as I am as a complementarian. Now, to illustrate this, I brought my handy-dandy broom. <laughs> what am I going to do? I'll show you here in a minute. I need a little help, um, but actually not from the broom at first, but instead from this little young man. Are you willing to help me this morning? Okay, what's your name? Brayden. Okay, so cameras, keep it on me for just a second, and then you'll see as we go how we're going to do this. Okay, Brayden, how old are you? 
10. Okay, very good. Now, Braden, have you ever climbed anything before? Like playground or climbing wall? Are you okay with that? And this is your dad here, right? Is he an attorney? <laughs> okay, good. All right. He signed the release form this morning, right? Okay, here, I'm just joking. What I mean is we're going to take a little risk, okay, Braden? But I think you're pretty tough and pretty strong. I think we can get away with it without spilling any blood, right? <laughs> okay, but you're, you're a tough guy, so we can do this. All right, I'm going to try to get you up on the stage, but I don't want to use the stairs, okay? And all these people are watching, so don't be nervous, all right? What we're going to do is I'm just going to hold on to your wrist. You hold on to mine. You can put like a foot against this, and I'm going to pull you up on the stage. Can we do that? Okay, you good with that? All right, hold on. Let me get close so I make sure I don't drop you on your head. All right, let's do this arm. And you can do this arm. Now put your feet up against it. All right, ready to push hard? Push. All right, we got it. All right. Good job. Woo! Okay, now let me ask you a question. No, no, no offense here, man. Someday you'll be bigger than me. I promise. Maybe. But, all right. Um, let me, let me just ask the audience a question. Okay, at this point in time, who's, who's bigger, me or Braden? Who's stronger, me or Braden? Now, who is the helper in this situation? Me, right? Okay, Braden, you can go sit down. Let's use the stairs this time, all right? All right, very good. Okay. Good job. Thank you very much. That was perfect, and I am really glad that you didn't get hurt. That makes me feel much better. Okay. So here's the thing. The Bible in Genesis chapter 2 says this. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. Now, when we hear that word with our modern North American ears, what do we think when we hear the word helper? Right? Ah, the hired help. The one who is my subservient slave who comes into the house and is not worthy of me. This person comes in and they sweep out and clean and I don't even pay attention to them, know that they exist, and they go away and they're no longer there. That's what we as North American enculturated people think of as help. The hired help. You go to a classroom, and no offense if anyone is like this, but I'm, I think I'm, I'm flipping this on he, its head, is there is a teacher's helper. And generally, the, te- the teacher is certified, and the helper may not be quite certified yet. They're an intern or assistant or moving into this role or whatever. And so we think naturally that the helper is not as qualified, that they are not certified, that they are not as good as. Why? Because they're helper. Now, let me show you this illustration. Who is the helper? Me. Who is bigger? Me. Who is stronger? Me. Just because you are called a helper doesn't mean that you are any weaker. Look at rock climbing, for example. The guy or person who is the strongest goes first, and the person who can't make it up the cliff, the, up the face of the cliff, goes second. And the first one pulls up the one who is behind guess what men and women women you are a helper and that's a good thing is in fact quite an impressive thing and and i you know what 
I believe there is such a thing as a gift of singleness, and there are guys out there who don't have a wife. You are a far better man than I. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. But because I need a helper, there are incredible ways in which my wife comes alongside of me and says, look, you cannot get up that cliff. <laughs> Let me help you out a little bit. I am more emotionally, whatever, capable, what, you know, I don't know what's going on there, but there are ways in which she helps me that I could never, ever, ever do myself. And I'm so glad she's there, and I'm quickly willing to admit that she is far stronger than I in many areas. That makes her my helper, because I'm scratching and clawing and trying to get up this cliff, this journey of life, and I can't do it myself. I need help. And someone who is stronger than I comes alongside and says, let me give you a hand. Whomp. Come on up, big boy. <laughs> yeah, you can move the furniture, but let me help. <laughs> I'll tell you where to put it. <laughs> right? We need a helper. We need one. Seriously. Where would we be without it? This is the way God has designed us. This, I think, is a complementarian point of view. It's not saying I'm better than. It's not saying I'm the biggest and the baddest and the strongest. In fact, the helper might be stronger. And that's why they can help. It's because they are strong. Okay? So, if that's not enough to convince you, let me give you a more specific example. God himself? What does the psalmist call him? My help? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If it is appropriate for God to be called a helper, don't you think it's appropriate for you to be called a helper? He is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing. He's worthy of our worship. We submit to him in every way. Come on. It's okay to be called help. Look, after the Exodus, Moses gets married to Jethro's daughter. He has two children, one of which he names... Eliezer. Now, let's do a little Hebrew quiz for people who like this. What does the Hebrew word El mean? What's, what's El? God, right? El Shaddai, you know, whatever. All these different Els, it's all meaning God, okay? Anytime you heard, hear the Hebrew word El in a name, it means God, okay? Elijah, El, God, E, my, Yah, Yahweh. Yahweh's my God, right? It's a pretty clear statement. But it's a big statement in a place where Yahweh is not considered God. Now, then, it'd be like if you were born into an Islamic country and you named your kid Christian, <laughs> you know? It sends a message that's not Mohammed or whoever. They might be in trouble. Okay, so El is God. Guess what the Hebrew... Now, let me tell you this word again. Eliezer. Guess what the word... For Hebrew helper is. Yezer. Exactly right. God is my helper. Moses names his kid God is my helper. Why? Because he could have never got out of Egypt on his own. No way. And he, every time, I mean, he's been delivered. And every time he sees that little boy, he wants to say, God is my helper. Let me not forget, I was no great military strategist or brave general. God brought me out of Egypt. God is my helper. God is a helper. That's a big, big picture. That's a big deal. God is a helper. He is stronger. He is bigger. He is our help. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help. 
the sword of your triumph. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. It's not such a bad thing. Don't be so North American. (laughs) Don't assume that because you're a help, you're insignificant or subservient. It's not true. You could actually be godlike and strong. Stronger than the one you are helping. It is not condescending to be called help. It is, in fact, complementary. And thus, I am a complementarian. So then, Philippians says it like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Oh, be like Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, co-equal with him, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Hmm. But instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, as a result of his subservience, as a result of his submission, as a result of his obedience, consequently, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that as a result of this, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. Jesus functions in relationship. Jesus obeys scripture, he submits to the Father, and he brings glory to God. So too should we. This, I think, is the scandal of the cross because we in our culture, we say, I would never lower myself to that. Yet you look, Jesus lowered himself as low as he could possibly go. And yet, in that lowering, there is no defeat, but instead there is victory. So then, wives, here it comes, ready? Submit to your husbands, just like Jesus submits to his Father. But... Lest we stop there, read verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5, which also says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Has Christ loved the church? Oh, so that means I don't get to hold it over her head and beat her down with it. That's exactly right. In fact, you get to serve as well in the same way that Jesus did. So pick up the broom. Here you go. You get to help. Jesus functions in relationship Jesus brings glory to God. He obeys scripture. He submits to the Father and he serves the church. We too need to be like Jesus in our relationships. Okay, submit, right, obey scripture, submit to the spirit and serve your spouse. Obey scripture, submit to the spirit and serve your spouse. And as a result, if you do this, you will bring glory to God. Now, five minutes left. Here we go. First Corinthians chapter 11. That's the big picture. That's the overarching idea. This is the complementarian, I believe, the biblical view of headship from the very beginning. Genesis through Revelation. All right. So what happens then in first Corinthians? Well, let me show you a slide here. Okay. You see first Corinthians chapter 11 and you see these two big underlined phrases. You probably can't read them, but you can see them. What's happening is this, is there's a thesis statement and then a conclusion summary, okay? And sandwiched in between there is all this stuff about headship. And particularly, 
with regard to head coverings. So the apostle is playing on, look, there's the real physical head, there's a spiritual head, and then there's that what you put on your head. Okay? So there's all these heads going on here. And you've got to be really careful to pay attention to which one he's talking about because he'll use the same word multiple times in the same sentence. And he goes from like physical head to spiritual head. Okay, so we can take away the slide now. And what we're saying is basically this, is Paul is in that cultural context, okay, specifically in Corinth. Um, and this is very different than ours. What happens is generally women wore their hair either in a, in a bun or they had a, a full covering like a burqa or something. Okay, so this is the way they went around. Now, if they wanted to imply that they were a bit promiscuous or if they wanted to sell their services, if you will, they would let their hair down. You know, perfume, let things hang out a little bit. Ooh, what's this? Something reserved only for my husband, but I'm offering it to you. Okay, there's the hair thing. Now, if they're going to go worship a pagan deity, instead of keeping their head covering on, which symbolized the fact that they are a woman, they would take the head covering off and say, I have ascended beyond human sexuality. I am early forms of Gnosticism. I am worshiping pagan deities. And human sexuality no longer applies to me. I have transcended that. And so in these ecstatic utterances and trances, I will throw off my head covering, let down my hair, and just feel it all go crazy. Right? Here's Corinth. And these Christian women are coming to church, and they're like, hey, cool. Freedom. Freedom. We have freedom in Christ. We're no longer under the law. Let's let down our hair and throw off our head covering and worship like the pagans. And Paul's saying, no, hold on there a minute. If you do that, that's a complete and total distraction from what should actually be happening on Sunday morning. You're there to worship God, respect your husband, and love one another. You're not there to be a distraction. You're there to worship God. So cover up. Ladies, cover up. Now this is where it gets fun. Because I'm like, okay, so how do we apply this to today? <laughs> you know? And if I, if I had the good fortune of being in Houston, if, not that I, I, I'm happy here in Midland, but if I was in Houston, I would ask Beth Moore to come and preach on this, right? And some woman could get up here and say, ladies, cover up, right? But I'm not going to get into specifics about what you should and shouldn't wear, lest I quickly find myself swept out the door. But let me say this, okay? When you come to worship, obviously you're coming to bring glory to God. And so it's the same sort of thing applies. Okay, a head covering may not be the thing. Just like meat and idols, right? Like you're not going into Walmart and turning over the package and saying, oh, is this sacrifice to an idol? Okay, that's a little bit different cultural context. When we read this text and we get all hung up on head coverings, we've totally missed the point. The thesis statement at the beginning and then the summary statement at the end. And let me read those to you. It's this. The thesis statement at the beginning, verse 3 of chapter 11, says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. There's that headship thing. Now he goes into all the head coverings, and then he comes back out again in verse 11 through 12, and he wraps it up. Wraps? Head wrap? Okay, never mind. He wraps it up. And he says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
for woman is made from man, but so now man is born of woman. Guys, you wouldn't be here were it not for your mama, okay? All things ultimately are from God. So it's just like the Trinity. There's this interdependent, interdependent, interlocking relationship that you can't get out of and you have to function within. Okay? So look at it. And this is how the Bible presents it, as co-equal yet different functions. That is the point of the text. And if we get all hung up on whether we should wear head coverings, we've totally, totally missed it. If you're a woman in first century Corinth, under these cultural circumstances, I would say, by all means, ladies, please wear head covering to church on Sunday. You should. Because if you don't, it applies that you're either sexually immoral or worshiping a foreign god. Now, we may not have, you know, like, oh, I'm wearing, you know, a jacket this morning. What does that imply? It implies my wife dressed me other than me, you know. So when I came out the door, I was like, oh, sunshine, let's wear shorts. And she's like, no, <laughs> no shorts. I'm like, oh, come on, mom, you know. And no, why, no, why am I wearing this jacket? Because I really like to wear jackets? No. Because when I come out on Sunday morning, my goal is to communicate the text. And I don't want to dress so loudly that all of a sudden you're just staring at me the whole time. I don't want to be too exaggerated. And at the same time, I don't want to be too understated either. I'm trying to find some silly balance in between where you're not paying attention to me and you're listening to the Word of God. So guess what? This text applies to men as much as it does to women. Because you ask yourself the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it drawing attention to God and His glory? Is it further advancing the gospel? Or is it just showing off me? You know, if I'm coming in with a Rolex and my, you know, super cool jeans and blah, 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 in some contexts, you know, that may be okay. In other contexts, they may be like, where are you from, you know? And the goal is just to be culturally, you know, in the middle so that you don't upset anybody. And the reason is this, is you're trying to bring glory to God. So again, you go back to the same grid you used when you talked about meeting idols. And you ask yourself the question, first of all, what I'm wearing, is it sinful? Is it sinful? And if the answer is no, then you ask yourself the next question. Well, is it a cultural thing? Head coverings in First Corinth? Or, if it's not a cultural thing, then you ask yourself, and it's not simple, you still ask yourself another question. Will it bring glory to God? What will most advance the gospel? Now, ladies, here's where we get specific, and you can even talk about swimsuits if you want. Because, listen, you put on that swimsuit, it's designed to do a certain thing, right? Keep you, you know, in the water. But if you buy a swimsuit that's designed to do something else, then you need to start asking yourself the question, is this bringing glory to God? Or is this attracting attention to my body? Am I saying that there's something here you should be paying attention to other than him? And if that's the case, that's a problem. Because that's not why we dress ourselves. We dress ourselves for function, to cover up, to be culturally appropriate. We don't do it to bring attention to ourselves. And like I said, that applies to men too. You know? I mean... I may spend too much on clothing or not enough on clothing. And people may look at you and go, man, dude, get a new pair of jeans or whatever. You look like an idiot or whatever, you know. Pay attention to what you're wearing, not for yourself, 
but for the glory of God, for the sake of the kingdom, and to be, you know, contextualized in your culture. Same grid applies. Eating meat, wearing clothes. I'm not going to stand up and say, you should wear this, and you shouldn't wear this, and you shouldn't wear that. But I am going to say, you should run it through what I call the glory grid. And say, I'm going out to the beach, I'm going to the mall, I'm going to whatever. What am I saying? What message am I communicating? Yes, you have the freedom to wear whatever you want. But you also have a responsibility as well. There's freedom, there's responsibility. That's why Galatians says it like this. It says, hey look, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom for an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, through love, serve one another. Oh, there's that service thing. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look, Jesus functions in relationship. We need to as well. We need to obey Scripture, submit to the Spirit, and serve our spouse. And that applies to clothing and everything else. When we come to a situation, we run it through the glory grid and we say, is this a sin? What does Scripture have to say? Okay? What is the Holy Spirit saying to me? Am I listening to Him? Am I submitting? Okay, no. What would most honor my spouse? How should I um, dress myself? And as a result, the goal then, the end goal, the end game, is to bring glory to God and advance the gospel. And that's the point. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I want to encourage you this morning. You know, I mean, most of us, this is middle America. I don't think a lot of us are too extravagant in our dressing or whatever. But think about the point. The point is not head coverings or whatever else. The point is to bring glory to God. To function in relationship as God has designed us to according to his word. And in that, to advance the gospel and as a result, bring glory to God. Be like Jesus. Function in relationship and bring glory to God. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for...